So look, we don't we don't like to get political on this podcast, obviously. <laughs> no. But um, obviously, me and Greg are bleeding heart lefties, bleeding heart libtards, and yeah. we're probably going to be voting for Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders when the primary comes our way. I, it's safe to assume, correct? Um, speak for yourself. It's Williamson or bust for me. Okay, <laughs> good vibes only. I believe in the power of orbs and the power of love <laughs> over hate. Okay, so all these other candidates can I don't know go take a hike or whatever, go move to Cuba, um, which would be hilarious for uh, President Trump and, and uh, his cohorts <laughs> to do. That'd be great. Uh, as far as I, as far as I know, they can all live in exile uh, in Cuba and duel it out there. I've I I am proud supporter of the Williamson White House. I believe it's going to happen, and I look forward to being the Minister of Culture. And okay. Oh. I've, I've, all right. Wow. You're, you're giving yourself a lot of credit. But no, either way, we're going <laughs> to hopefully when Warren or Bernie comes into power, we'll have a yes. socialist utopia. That's what we're all hoping for. And we can finally well, start. Well, I, I don't want to get too tanky here, but um, <laughs> there's a lot of buzz that uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, says these bold proposals and then goes uh, it less overtly than Kamala Harris, then goes to the, the real people in power and says, I don't really believe this don't worry there's there's no. lots of paths to medicare for all y'all are you <laughs> yeah. serious oh, yes are you telling me that women yeah. be fake as shit <laughs> classic story classic well i story. heard i heard it on uh my closest approximation to political life and that's twitter so mm-hmm. obviously the veracity is 100 percent accurate we can okay. we can uh, affirm that for sure naturally of course yeah well here's my problem okay or not problem here's my solution here's what i'm looking yeah. forward, forward to the most is uh-huh. when Elizabeth Warren or uh, Bernie Sanders are inevitably elected president, we're going to get our socialist utopia and we're going to start breaking up the monopolies. And then we never have to hear about fucking Disney again. <laughs> and Disney will be, be dissolved and mm. it won't be the massive entertainment conglomerate that it is anymore. And I don't have to hear about it fucking every news cycle about, you know, oh, who owns the rights to Spider-Man? Uh, what's going on with D23? Oh, here's the newest uh, fucking uh, Star Wars trailer. I don't give a shit. I'm tired of it. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I am done. John, I think you found a bridge to bipartisanship. I think... <laughs> Because you're right, the left, the if I could use the broad term, the left is anti-monopoly. The right is anti-liberal Hollywood. Who wants to put women in Star Wars? Oh, you're right. You're absolutely yes, right. Yes, this is the grand. This is the grand bargain that we need. This is the great compromise. You are you are the 21st century Henry Clay. You have found <laughs> something that heck. The next administration is not going to be Infrastructure Week. It's going to be Break Up Disney Week. Mm. It's going to be broken up into I don't know, six different studios of its own. We're going to go back to like the Big Twelve or whatever it was. And yeah, I think John, you found a bipartisan solution. Heck, I think you I'd found a happy, consensus. I'd be happy with the Big Five. Can we go back to the days of Paramount and RKO? Like I, I miss those <laughs> days. Can we go I back miss to that? RKO too? <laughs> Uh, you know what we need? We need Orion to really have a bigger presence. A24 was almost there, but they've, they've hit some hard times. No. They need to diversify. Like, even even their comedies, like Booksmart, have this like mm-hmm. weird, grungy, uh, limited appeal that, that it only extends to weirdos like you and me. Mm-hmm. Um, we need Orion to do uh, tasteful, really extremely well-done movies like Silence of the Lambs, and then just balls to the wall, awesome schlock like Robocop. <laughs> we, need to, we need a company like that to really come to the fore again. What about Canon? Can we bring back Canon films? I, I don't have this affection for Canon that other oh. people do. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I don't like laughing at bad you? movies. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a huge Death Wish 
three fan for that reason. Okay. I'm not a huge like Invasion USA fan for <laughs> yeah, just how just how it glamorizes violence. I know obviously the the cool Gen X uh, slash older millennial take is obviously oh canon, you know, balls of the wall. Like yeah, something that could only exist for its time. I I'd rather like Orion, like maybe have a foot in that exploitation area and that but then have another foot in terms of artistic merit see it'll be interesting to see how history remembers blumhouse because that's kind of the closest thing we have our generation at least to an orion or a uh, canon films which is very low budget kind of schlocky but also kind of auteur pieces occasionally like they obviously produce a lot of uh, jordan peele stuff so it'll be interesting to see how history remembers them and or if it remembers them at all like i don't know how much people will be like oh remember the nun remember yeah. <laughs> remember the annabelle cinematic universe that yeah, was a good time think, with the movies yeah i think they'll look at it in terms of like cable networks they need uh cra- crappy crummy reality shows to keep the lights on but sometimes mm. they 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 bump up against something that's that's saying something very interesting thematically like ready or not being about a polemic against the 1% or <laughs> Say the witch, or yeah, something like that. Actually, that's an A twenty four joint. What am I saying? You um, mean the Vivich? <laughs> the Vivich. You're right. <laughs> Coming soon from that director. Uh, check out the Lighthouse. Uh, I'm sure th- that'll be an R and R later. But yes, exactly. But yeah. I, I mean, also, I, I brought up Blumhouse, thinking that they're like kind of an independent creative vision. I'm, I assume that they're some kind of like subsidiary or Paramount or something like that. And that's the other I, thing. Like Viacom and CBS are splitting up apparently, but they're not because no, they're they still split the same up and company. now they're back together. Oh my god, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. <laughs> Here's the thing, John. Just blissfully put cast that out of your mind. Okay. How about this? Just get off the internet. Unplug, uh, if you can, for I don't know, thirty seconds. Come on, John. I know you need that endorphin rush though. I can't. That's I can't. your problem. Twitter's just too damn funny. I can't help myself. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't know until you can start muting every. Uh, every AV club writer or <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a tall task to really to try to get the endorphin rush from Twitter or the internet, but also try to be exhausted from like, Hey, D 23 has announces a new product. Whoopee. Mm-hmm. Here's then here's the next slate of Pixar films. Whoopee. Like, ugh, yeah, just so tired. Yeah. On a, on a graph <laughs> extending all the way to 2030 as if there will be a 2030. So, <laughs> We'll see, 2020. It's either going to be a great year or a very, very, very dark year. <laughs> I think I think uh, Nostalgia Cycle coming back, it'll be the Roaring Twenties again, John. We'll be wearing spats. Oh. <laughs> Art Deco will be making a comeback. No more glass and open concept. Art Deco, baby. It's all coming back. I did go to a speakeasy the past week. So, uh, oh, Simon's birthday. Me, so, yeah, yeah, I felt like a, I felt like a flapper, an old-timey flapper. Hey, let's <laughs> skadoo. we got to get out of here. <laughs> Hot crackers! What a scoop! Let me tell you, <laughs> so I'm sure I'm sure everybody enjoyed you talking like that. Thank you. Yes, and I did. And you didn't clear out the speakeasy as soon as <laughs> as soon as you opened your your gaping maw. Oh. Anyway, John, let's let's not cast our eyes to the future or the past, but the present. Mm. Are you, I, you may be exhausted with Disney's pronouncements, but what about Netflix, huh? I They've mean, got a lot of new stuff on the slate. I'm not going to lie. I was a little excited about the El Camino teaser. Not going to lie. Yeah. My little heart <laughs> fluttered. My little heart grew three sizes that day. <laughs> I know. That's that's another um, uh, indicative of the contra- uh, contradictory nature of our entertainment choices. We can deride Disney for ugh, just all these live-action remakes. Um, give us something original. Give us something new. Don't just uh, regurgitate and recycle all the old material. What's this? A new Breaking Bad movie? <laughs> 
I just want to know how they're going to get Brian Cranston back into the fold. I don't think they are. I oh, think really? That's the, that's no. A, yeah. No. Hence why the teaser doesn't fe- feature him, bruh. You Come don't, on. You don't make that elevator pitch without Brian Cranston on board. Let me tell you, sir. Okay? I, he's Emmy winner. Man. He's Brian Cranston. He's too busy. And what's what's been the talk of every like Breaking Bad movie? Oh, it'll focus on Jesse. It'll focus on Jesse. Yeah, I guess that's true. That's true. Yeah. And uh, obviously, they're they're laying their cards on the table right now. It's a very a very Jesse focused movie, I- yeah. ideally. So we'll, we'll we'll see. I'm 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 cautiously optimistic. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, John, are you optimistic about the new series that's coming out? I believe a limited series produced by the Jim Henson Company. Mm, I I'm not familiar. Who is this Jim Henson you talk about? <laughs> <laughs> Well, John, Jim Henson has an indelible impact on our popular culture, and I want to talk about one of his uh, most ultra uh, artistic achievements, something that really kind of falls outside the mainstream, but a lot of people have a lot of nostalgia for it. Mm-hmm. Yes, because this week we finally caught up with the 1980s classic, The Dark Crystal. Here, I'll help you out. first thing I remember is fire. It's a war. I think. A tree. My mother puts me right inside, and we're... Mother! Mother the monster! First thing I remember is the kind one. He picks me up, and he's big. He makes the monsters disappear, and I'd be safe. I am safe. What's happening? We're dream fasting, sharing our memories. (laughs) I'm having a bath. When I was little, I used to get fed by my new mom. She called me Kieran. Finally. We're, we're going to have the final word. <laughs> it was either this or Labyrinth, and Labyrinth wasn't free streaming on any platform. Yeah. So that's well, why the Netflix, uh, to be fair, Netflix is not free. All right, stop saying I, that. Okay, you're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> All right, I'm conscious of my credit card statements, sir. <laughs> They can't hide these little charges and surcharges from me. <laughs> I do love that. Like everyone talks about late stage capitalism. Obviously, we're in late yeah. stage capitalism. If you have a service that literally conglomerates all your uh, subscription services, so you can keep track, it's implying that you know you don't even know what you're paying anymore because yeah. your life is just we're in hell. We're in hell right now. So <laughs> there you are. <laughs> to be fair, that was the case uh, a decade ago with cable. So. Oh, okay. Fair point. Yeah. Fair point. So not, not much has changed. Yeah, Disney's um, bringing back the bundles. Bundles, guys. Awesome. <laughs> yes. Anyway, The Dark Crystal. Mm. Obviously, there's a new series that's going to be premiering on Netflix. So this movie obviously has some cachet 30 years later. I believe it came out in 1982. Mm-hmm. And yes, this was... Jim Henson's attempt to step out into something different. He'd been doing, like, Muppets and kind of family-friendly entertainment. Here he wanted to do something a little bit more epic, a little bit more out there, really let his creative juices flow. And he got together with Frank Oz and Gary Kurtz, uh, one of the producers behind the original Star Wars movie, Mm -hmm. and uh, they came up with this. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there's no way to talk about this without bringing up the fact that recently, and I've spotlighted them before, that uh, Defunct Land, which is a YouTube channel, recently did a five-part series as a kind of career retrospective on Jim Henson. That's also what kind of drew me to watching this movie, because even though that series was mainly focused on his TV projects, he does bring up the fact that Jim Henson, A, if he ever had to put a title to himself, he would describe himself as an experimental filmmaker. Not a puppeteer, even though that's obviously what he's most famous for, but he, he saw himself as an experimental filmmaker. And even though he doesn't really spend a lot of time on the Dark Crystal, he talks about you know the the phase of Jim Henson's career where he wanted to do the Dark Crystal, and I think uh, Kevin Perger, the guy behind the Defunct Land, surmises this movie perfectly and so succinctly 
which is the Dark Crystal is a production designer's dream and an editor's nightmare because it's 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 a lavishly produced wonderful movie with no story, with no core, yes. with no engine. You know, like Stephen King famously said about the uh, Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining, it's a beautiful Corvette with no engine. Like, yeah. without, a, without a story, without, you know, something driving the narrative or the lavish direction, then you just have something empty there. And The Dark Crystal, though, you know, a, a technical achievement, yeah, there's not a lot going on here <laughs> at all. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't want to deride it for not having, as you said, like not having that core. Because I think there's a lot of affection and effort put into this production. However, the thing I kept going back to was the image of a bodybuilder. Mm-hmm. And it's like saying, wow, look at that guy's arms. <laughs> like, wow, just marvel at its arms. Like, But if you were a judge of a bodybuilder competition, you have to look at the whole body. You can't just say, wow, A-plus arm work you did there. You worked your triceps, your biceps, forearms. Like, wow, you're looking great. Awesome job there. No, you have to grade the whole thing. And the problem is, you're right, this whole... The, the, the movie as a whole does not work. And I, mm-hmm. and I wanted to ask if this was... Jim Henson's fault for, again, putting all of his effort into this, this wonderfully designed puppets and creating a, a massive world of Gelflings, different races, heck, doing different languages. He originally wanted everything to have its own language, not in English, not having a single like human character on screen. Like, amazing amount of ambition behind that. Mm-hmm. Or is it his fault for not being conscious of an audience that can't like go there? Or is it my fault for not having the, the creativity and openness to go there with him? I mean, that's kind of the strange thing about Jim Henson. I feel like part of the reason why Jim Henson succeeded is because he surrounded himself with a lot of talented people. And so while Jim Henson definitely did bring the creative direction and the kind of anarchic spirit that an artistic production needs, I think he didn't get too hung up on the details or just kind of the basics. (laughs) (laughs) Like when it came to like, and again, I think this is why, you know, there's like a mini spotlight. I do want to talk about Kevin Perger's uh, retrospective on Jim Henson's career. I do think that that five-part documentary series is very vital because it does capture the reason why Jim uh, Jim Henson is such kind of an enigmatic creative figure is because he did surround himself with so many people who could help him. It's like, mm. yes, he had that kind of vision for the Muppet show, but if it wasn't for people like Frank Oz, if it wasn't for performers who could kind of bring those characters to life and kind of give structure to that story, I don't think it would have worked. And I think this is kind of a textbook case of who Jim Henson was and, as an artist is because, you know, obviously he's got boundless creativity. He envisioned this whole world and these bizarre creatures. But, again, he can't capture character and he can't capture story. And that's very <laughs> true of this film. The story is literally uh, some kind of magic crystal lost a fragment and the fragment <laughs> needs to be returned. And only this weird little puppet boy can do it. Like, yeah. And it's prophesized. Yeah. So it's like, it's not even, you don't even get like, like a character turn or maybe a refusal of a call it's like there's nothing going on <laughs> yeah there's there's two things that stood out in my mind only because they're two recent movies that really are i think tie closely to the or at least emblematic of what he's trying to do in the dark crystal that is an animated adaptation of the lord of the rings mm-hmm. which came out in the late 1970s as well as star wars mm-hmm. which is also like telling the perfect hero's journey and i think he wants to do that but he doesn't nail down like any of the details as you said we follow a a gelfling named jen after a long uh opening narration we learn that uh he's he's basically been orphaned he's the last of his kind 
and he's under the care of these mystics. Again, like beautifully designed puppets. You don't, you can't see like how a human could possibly like puppeteer them. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, he's just told like, "Hey, you have to. You're the chosen one. You have to fulfill this destiny." due to this ambiguous prophecy on this planet that has no relation to Earth or human beings or <laughs> anything like that. <laughs> that has no relation to like any other human mind that you could do other than the mind of Jim Henson, maybe. Uh, go do it, and <laughs> like on your own. I'm going to die now. <laughs> and I, and mean, I think we... he has like the... Yeah, and you're right. He has like kind of the outline, like there's a call, and a mentor has to pass away. So now it's on the, the onus is on the apprentice to go go succeed on this journey but yeah it doesn't do any of the setup like say like say what you will about luke his very first line in star wars is like you know like uh i want to go to the stachi hachi station and get power converters you know he's whiny but at least like you know what he wants Mm -hmm. you know what he's motivated by and that's to get off this rock and be somebody like jen just the jen our protagonist here just goes to uh his master which is also weird i don't know why he kept calling him master because it's not implied that he's an apprentice in some way no just says like hey what's up and then he tells him <laughs> this long prophecy and he's like okay gotta go <laughs> all right um, i will do that <laughs> yeah and then also because he's not got no characters to play off of like no han solo no samwise ganji whatever doubts he has has to be delivered via voiceover to nobody just to the ether exactly and I yeah. think I can't help but feel like they added that voiceover because this is a completely puppeted production. There is no humans whatsoever. And so I can't help but feel like they added the uh, voiceover because like, those puppets, even though they are quite amazing, can't yeah. quite capture that range of emotion. So it's like there's a scene where he's in a swamp, which, by the way, both this and the Muppet movie start with a puppet in a swamp, and I can't help playing an instrument, and I can't help but feel that that's an accident. <laughs> um <laughs> There's a certain point where he feels like he's kind of like lost in the woods, and so they have a voiceover conveying that because the puppet just can't do that by itself. And so, like, part of it feels like they needed to add the voiceover. And also, the voiceover just kind of makes it feel more like a children's production, because the way the voiceover is kind of added in, it's very much like, ah, this is what I'm feeling right now, like, in case (laughs) anyone in the back didn't get it. So. (laughs) Rose Nebri, my. I think that's also buoyed by a desire to, again, take you to a, a completely whole other world that, again, has no connection to even Earth. Imagine a world in which there's there's no relation to humankind or anything like that. And I'm wondering, was a, a puppeteered live-action feature film the best avenue to do that? Mm-hmm. Like, the reason there was an, it, the Lord of the Rings movie was animated was because there was no way you could tell this epic story 
of, of in live action without it looking, say, cheesy or kitschy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the animated form was like the best way to do that. So I want to ask Jim Henson: Is like was this the best way to do that? As you said, Jen. Jen has a hard time emoting. Basically, all they can control is his eyes. Mm-hmm. Like, they can't curl his lips to, like, register a smile or a frown. They don't have any eye. He doesn't have any eyebrows, so he can't register emotion that way. Like, all he has is just his eyes opening and closing. That's it. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I wish Jim Henson could have uh, seen, seen the day of, the, of the, the latest Lion King movie and Pixar so <laughs> that he could maybe, via the the magic of computers really see the vision I think he wanted Mm -hmm. and really communicate the emotionality behind it. Because as you, as you said, the, the puppeteering as great as it is, is also very limiting emotionally. Like none of these characters, they have to use their voices. They have to use voiceover. They have to use like uh, the most didactic uh, dialogue and exposition possible. And yeah, it really takes you out of the story. See, I kind of want to push against that a little bit because also talking about Jim Henson, his career, the film he followed this up with is Labyrinth. And part of a lot of the um, creative decisions that went behind Labyrinth was kind of like a course direct, uh, course correction for the Dark Crystal. So yeah. that's why that movie centers around a human girl and it has a human villain because, again, we wouldn't run into those same issues with, you know, oh, puppets not being able to capture the whole range of emotions that we want to do. But part of me feels like that they could have, even with the limited amount of uh, emotional range that the puppet does have. I feel like if they did have a better story or at least a character behind it, I think it could have worked. But again, because there's nothing there, it's literally Jen is just like, he's told to go to a place and then he goes to a place and then he runs into, you know, roots that capture him. And the only real character of the movie is, uh, uh, and I'm looking this up because <laughs> I don't think, <laughs> is uh, Argrath, the Keeper of Secrets, who's performed by Frank Oz. It's this like old yeah. kind of witchy hag who has an eyeball that she can like take out and kind of peer around corners and things. Yeah. <laughs> performed by Frank Oz, but also voiced by legendary Billy Whitelaw. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my favorite role, or at least one of my favorite characters in Hot Fuzz. Uh, great movie. <laughs> And that's like kind of like the closest thing we get to an actual character because it, yeah. it's it's meant to be kind of like sage-like, but also very Yoda-like, which is like, oh, you weren't what I was expecting, were you? <laughs> and uh, yeah, and she's in the movie quite a bit, but again, like because there's no real story, she gets captured, and then she's just kind of like hangs around for the rest of the movie, and uh, I don't. there's no like again i I can't reiterate this enough there's no story here (laughs) yeah (laughs) so let's get to what people i think are really affectionate about and that's the two warring factions in this fantastical world the mystics and the skexis namely the skexis yes the skexis um yeah again marvelous production design you can't tell that they're really like how they have any relation to humans like picture the Muppets like you see the human hands kind of behind it I think with the the idea behind both the mystics and the skeptics is we want to completely hide the human element from it mm-hmm. um, so the the skexis are sh- or excuse me the mystics are shown walking but they're like kind of hunched over I believe they have four arms and long necks and so like and you wonder like the amount of articulation and effort had to go to kind of make this fantastical creature and then also the design of the Skeksis. Um, this is still a very family-friendly movie, but they had the kind of, I think, wherewithal and courage to go out there and, and design some like really grotesque creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, there there's one Skeksis in particular, the Chamberlain. His, he's motivated to find 
uh, Jen, our protagonist, because he gets exiled. There's a, there's a, there's an interregnum. There's a, um, <laughs> a moment where the the leader has died, and so they need to elect a new leader, and so he gets cast aside. And there's the the one scene that really stuck with me is when um, the trial of these... stone. That's what they yeah. had to compete against. The trial of stone. Yes. <laughs> Um, it was it wasn't that sequence in particular, but when we see the Skeksis, they've got these like they've, they've got these bird-like heads over these big giant bodies. And after the Chamber Chamberlain loses this battle, they strip him of his clothes, and he's left with this wiry frame. Mm-hmm. So that that worked. It's like the filmmaking was finally in service of like character and emotionality because we see this character who is obviously cast as a villain now we see him in a more sympathetic light and now he's motivated to go find like uh propel the story forward by capturing our lead hero exactly that's the only moment the movie came alive for me because i thought like oh palace intrigue like there's Mm -hmm. infighting within the villains so that could lead to kind of interesting developments which again it doesn't really because literally that's (laughs) gexus finds jen Kind of, and it's implied that it's like he's kind of like trying to use Jen for his own ulterior motives, but then they just kind of end up back in the big chamber with the uh, crystal, the dark crystal, and then the. I just, I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm so confused. <laughs> so there was like this dark. There's this crystal called the dark crystal, and it's powerful yeah. for reasons. And uh, a chip fell off, and then the world was plunged into darkness, and then the chip has to be returned so that the Skeksis and the Mystics can be one again. Yeah. That's that's ultimately it. And that's what happens in the movie. Like, that's it. <laughs> like, at yeah. least throw in a twist, buddy. Like, come on. <laughs> I tell it! Hmm? Hmm. Trial by stone. Trial by stone! Well, I'm thankful that we do enter, like, different aspects of this world. Namely, like, yes, people have a lot of affection for the design of the Skeksis. The one, the characters I really attach to, like the Ewoks in Return of the Jedi, I really like the podlings. Mm. Um, so she meets uh, Kira, who's the obvious love interest here. Mm-hmm. And it turns out they are, in fact, the last of their kind. They thought they were alone each, but actually they've, they've, they've come together and will come together maybe later. Um, but... <laughs> She ingratiates herself with an underground uh, society of podlings, who are these adorable little creatures who, I'm sure some people have, uh, who have noted that uh, would evolve into the Fraggle Rocks, <laughs> the Fraggles. <laughs> but they're they're adorable, and they're obviously like puppets. You see the, the hand motions behind them, and yet I like that was another like design where I was like, oh, I was drawn in by I think the simplicity of it. Mm-hmm. Like I think maybe one point. It, not in the movie's favor is the fact that the Skeksis and the Mystics are so complex and they're not registering anything emotionally 
that the the simple design of the podlings is what like kind of drew me in and the fact that it is it is bright and cheery when the movie is so serious. That's the other problem this movie yes. has. It is deadly no serious. No moments of levity. Like going yeah. back to the podlings, part of the only plot reason why they exist is because a they've taken care of Kira, our love interest. Mhm. Um, but then also we get a scene involving with them where they're kind of like captured and turned into slaves by the Skeksis just to kind of yeah. demonstrate that the Skeksises are evil. They capture them and then suck their life energy out. <laughs> and this I, Yeah, this I want to bring up to. I want to put a pin in this mm-hmm. discussion point because mm-hmm. this is one of a number of 80s movies that get into body horror and like our, our bodies transforming. Mm-hmm. If you recall, werewolves were mm-hmm. huge in the 80s yep. between an American werewolf in Paris and teen wolf movies. Mm-hmm. American uh, Wolf in London. You said Paris. London, excuse me. Yeah. yeah. Paris was the 90s one. Because yeah. <laughs> we're 90s kids. We don't know. Now. Yeah. It's also a matter of the fly. Mm. The thing. Yep. So there's so many body horror and like misidentity and like biological like subjects of the 80s. I was wondering what it was about this era that. Um, the, like really got tapped into filmmakers' heads and why stories really centered around that. I'm assuming it's a Cold War and communism and maybe in relation because a lot of movies were about that in the 50s, but I, I wanted to hear your perspective on that. Um, I really do think it was production design driving what they could do. And again, there was this sense of like, what can we get away with? So I do think that mm. there was kind of a sense of like, how far can we push this? Like, And I definitely feel like that was definitely in Jim Henson's mind when he set forth with making this movie is the fact that how far can we push puppetry? Like he obviously was not fine with doing felt anymore. He wanted to do realistic textures and he wanted to make these animal, these creatures move like real creatures. And I can't help but feel like maybe what drove the whole element of the Skeksis kind of being uh, interested in immortality is because so that way he could do weird effects where they age in real time. Like, again, yeah. like, going back to the Emperor dying, like, he literally crumbles into dust. And yeah. part of me feels like that they, like, it's it serves a story purpose, but it also, I think it's because practical effects had evolved so much in that time that they're like, look at what we can get away with. Kind of the okay. same thing with, like, uh, digital effects. And, you know, digital effects obviously feel less special because there's not that kind of tactile sense to it. But I do feel mm-hmm. like part of the reason why people have so much affection for 80s movies is that, yes, those practical effects were, <laughs> for lack of a better word, practical. They were tactile. Okay. People had to actually, like, you know, do camera trickery. And there had to be craftsmen behind it who actually had to make it work. All right. So they, it was like the f- the function pushed the form in a way. I, I, I think so. I mean, I could okay. be wrong. Like, if you can yeah. come up with a better example, I'd be like, oh, okay, all right, I believe that. But, I mean, part of me feels yeah. like the function did push the form. It's like, look what we can get away with. Look how gross we can possibly make yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. So, yeah, I didn't want to uh, interrupt your point on <laughs> how the skeptics, like, act from here. Mm-hmm. Because there's like a mad scientist Skeksis who uh, takes the life essence from uh, these poor little podlings, and that's how uh, Kira becomes our damsel in distress. Looks like her life li- life essence is going to be taken as well, mm-hmm. but somehow she's like the chosen one. And <laughs> I just I just thought of something. Maybe it had something to do with aging. Maybe it's because Ronald Reagan was president. People are very uh, very in tuned to how bodies decay, and so there's another. I think there's got to be another reason why Cocoon was such a big hit. 
Like people were people were into body horror because they were being reminded of the decaying process that all humans ah. go through. Maybe that had yeah. something to do with it. Yes, uh, uh, physical decline and cognitive decline. Also, in the case of <laughs> Ronald Reagan. I mean, is there more body horror because of Donald Trump? Possibly. We'll never yeah, know. Who knows? Yeah. Let's revisit in five years. Let's see. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like, there's just. I wish we could say more about this movie, but the problem is that it does feel so empty. Like, it wouldn't be. I don't think it would be as much of a problem with a very simple story like this if it was trying to go for, like, maybe potentially larger themes. But I don't even think there's a lot of thematic resonance either. Like,. Besides just the very base, we've we've talked a lot about the hero's journey right now, and again how yeah. it's kind of like going through the motions. But besides just you know general, hey, unity's a good thing. Like <laughs> I don't know if this movie's <laughs> trying to tap into any kind of like deeper thoughts or ideas. No, yeah, I mean, um, undoubtedly Jim Henson is an amazing artist, mm-hmm. and like any artist, he wants to say he's he has something on his heart that he wants to express, and. The problem is, what he wants to express in this movie is, look how amazing I can make puppets. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of telling a story or imparting something to the audience, that's the only thing it really imparts, is like, look how amazing these puppets are. Mm-hmm. And he forgot to he forgot to actually put a, a framework to actually apply all, that, all, all those materials and to make something palatable to audience members like you and I. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, I also don't blame him for it, because that's who Jim Henson was. Like I said, he was kind of a creative visionary but again when yeah. it came down to the actual like nuts and bolts he was definitely not the guy you go to and again he was a flower child he was a kid of the 60s so it's like oh yeah we're making a movie about unity man it's about like <laughs> two forces that need to like come together and they're broken inside but then they get together at the end and it's fine <laughs> yeah and you know i i don't want to sound dismissive because artistic achievement needs folly and i'm sorry to say <laughs> the dark crystal is a, a, a fascinating looking folly mm-hmm. as a movie I'm, so i mean it would be interesting if we could like double pair it with labyrinth because labyrinth is it's like an interesting case study because again it was like a course correction but that movie has its own faults because of it as well so it's kind of a i don't know if you've ever seen labyrinth or at least bits and pieces mm, well of it. no i i was less interested in it because the dark crystal is an independent production mm. it, it was um jim henson and frank oz kind of doing their own thing with the help of uh Gary Kurtz, an independent producer, whereas Labyrinth, I think, was explicitly like studio product, and they got Jim Henson involved or something, or acquired the the project and and kind of pushed it forward to be palatable commercial entertainment. Yeah, that was less interesting to me. Yeah, that's than fair. Yeah, Crystal. I mean, that's kind of the interesting thing. Like, I I keep bringing it up, but Kevin Perger's four part or five part series on Jim Henson's career that is the most interesting aspect of it, where he talks about. Jim Henson as the creative visionary, but also in the later stages, like he he realized to keep his company going, he had mm-hmm. to put out commercial products. That's why I think again, I I I, did, I wanted to save this for spotlight, but I can't help but bring it up now. His yeah. his five part Jim Henson rep- retrospective. I have to recommend episode four, which is ostensibly about the Muppet Babies, <laughs> because. <laughs> They were like a five-minute segment in The Muppets Take Manhattan, but again, the audience response was like so strong. He's like, "Well, I've got to monopolize this somehow. I've got to, I've got to monetize this in some yeah. way or the other." So, it it is kind of funny that again, like you know, you want to think of Jim Henson as this boundless fountain of creativity, but also there was a businessman aspect to it as well. Yep, okay. he's an interesting guy, Jim Henson. Guys, I don't know yeah. if you've heard of this Jim Henson guy. <laughs> 
I'm glad we're getting a spotlight on him. Yeah. Well, for three three uh, straight weeks, we've looked at uh, enigmatic, uh, boundlessly creative uh, male filmmakers. So. <laughs> you could have just said filmmakers, Greg. No, nope. <laughs> they're, they're undoubtedly male. we got to be more intersectional, John. Come on. There's no it's 2019. Uh, no, I've looked at my list of greatest movies. There's no females involved in them, period. So clearly <laughs> clearly it's a problem. It's females' faults, all right? It's yes. women's faults that they're not involved. <laughs> they're clearly less talented. That's got to be the reason why. Absolutely. <laughs> She has the shot. Take it from her. Watch out, Kira. Kira, behind you. No. Leave her alone. Give us the shard and you can go free. Yes. Just don't harm her. No, Jen. Heal the crystal. Well, Greg, we're trying not to get too political, but I feel like we have to. Like it's part of the podcasting game, and we have to we have to pick winners and losers. That's what that's what it's all about. It's about winning or losing. Who do you got as a winner, Greg? Well, socialism for one. <laughs> yes, it's going to happen because we're young people for whom capitalism has not worked. And exactly. So we see a, a different political horizon for us. Yeah, exactly. Get out the guillotine. Let's go. Come on. Yeah. Let's hurry this along. <laughs> yes. But before that, uh, let's shine a light. Uh, or, gosh, I've already ruined the analogy. Um, <laughs> let's expose some of society's ills mm-hmm. by uh, recommending something, uh, something distracting for the masses. Some bread and circuses that they can distract themselves with. I love it. This, I love uh, it. From this hellish political reality. Uh, we do it every week with our signature section, Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Spotlight. John, can I recommend some bread and circuses for you? Yes, please, because mine was going to be very less bread and circuses, but please go ahead. Okay. It's it's the Halcyon days. Cast your mind back <laughs> to the Halcyon days of the internet, circa 2008. Nostalgia, I love it. Yes, Ugh. yes. Hope was on the ballot, and it won in <laughs> Barack Obama. Oh, I Hope. thought you were talking about the Pepsi campaign. Ugh, remember that <laughs> Pepsi campaign? No, they redesigned their logo. It's great. It was great. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but um, Hope was also in the minds of many young improvisational and sketch comedians because they had a brand new platform with which to sell their wares namely uh the internet basically youtube and daily motion and basically they they had the power to to sell themselves via Mm -hmm. short sketches and short internet videos and i want to talk about a pair of two young brilliant white men who did that I think I know who you're going to, who you're going with, but I, I I can't wait. I can't wait. Let's hear it. I I returned to this because YouTube spit back a sketch that they did that came out nine years ago now. Nine years oh ago. Oh my god! 
so old. I'm decaying like yes. a Skeksis. Yes. I'm like looking at my aunt. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about Britannic, John. Mm. Do you remember Britannic? I love they're back, Britannic. Baby. I love... Actually, what am I saying? They're back. They never went away. I know. They just stopped doing sketches for a while, but then, you know, Joss Whedon yeah. was like, hey, <laughs> I'll pay for some more. Let's do it. Yes. Well, they didn't went away. They, they went legit. So these are two guys. I think they met in college. And like many other young improv and sketch comedy troops, they plied their trade on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the one video I'm talking about in particular is when uh, they did like the most Oscar-winning movie of all time, um, <laughs> I, which I think is actually brilliant, not in the way that it breaks down uh, Oscar-bait films or films explicitly designed to win awards, but also in structure of trailers, like yes. how it's telling a story. <laughs> so, that's a brilliant, so that's a brilliantly done sketch if you're tired of this kind of Oscar-bait uh, parroting material. Um, <laughs> still very good. I think our favorite sketch is a, is a send-off of the, uh, the fudge gag from Christmas Story. I don't know this one. What are you talking about? Do you don't remember that one? I know, because we've watched it together. It's the one where it's that classic moment from A Christmas Story where Ralphie yells out in slow motion, Ah, fudge. Mm-hmm. Only I didn't say fudge. Mm-hmm. From there, it, it compels to, he keeps saying things in slow motion, only he realizes he's, saying, he's not saying what he thinks he is. Oh. And then, <laughs> yes. And then it, and then it uh, escalates to um, him in slow motion saying, The Holocaust wasn't exaggerated. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, I need to revisit this one. I don't remember this yes. one. This is good. Yes, this it is, is good. just called Fudge. Yeah. Okay. Classic. So then they went legit. Mm-hmm. Started writing for Saturday Saturday Night Live, and it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, I didn't know that. Good yeah. for them. Yeah, but they're but they're still pumping out stuff on their YouTube channel, John. I don't know if you knew this. Uh, I I did see recently that they did a new sketch, but I haven't got a chance to catch up on it. So. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's another one like the fudge sketch that starts with a simplistic premise and then builds. In mm-hmm. this case, it's uh, Brian McElhaney is playing a detective, and his cohort Nick is a uh, is an aggrieved husband, or excuse me, aggrieved widower, mm-hmm. um, who's who's asked the detective like, "Can you find my killer?" And then um, so there's that tri- there's that triggering moment. He says something innocuous or something trivial, and then the detective goes, "Wait, what did you say?" And instead of <laughs> instead instead of what he's actually looking for, it keeps building. Like, no, before that, no, before that, <laughs> okay. no, before that. Going back to when they first met, going back to that character's uh, past lives, going all the way back to antiquity <laughs> and the birth of the universe. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I brought up the billion payoff. So yeah, I I I brought up the fact that they are they are also uh, cohorts with Joss Whedon as well, and so they've incorporated yeah. him into one of his sketches where they pretend like they don't know who he is. But then also I know about their careers is that they also appeared in like Joss Whedon did like a movie adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream at one point, and I yes. know they both appeared in that in some capacity. So <laughs> okay, yeah. So yeah. So don't cry for them like a lot of if if they have stepped away from the internet, um, <laughs> like a lot of like a lot of young troops from back in the day, mm-hmm. um, their productivity has fallen, but they're still... Uh, they're still working. They're still working. Yes, I still think they're they're an astronomical success. Exactly. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's funny, you brought it up like 2008. That was kind of the golden peak of sketch comedy on the internet. You had like Colin yeah. Humor, you had five-second films, you had, I mean, Cracked, like Britannic was yeah. signal-boosted by Cracked all the time. Like, yeah, they were same making... with Those Aren't Muskets. and Yeah. Those were the those were the good old days. What I happened? Know. Now it's all fucking PewDiePie <laughs> and shit. 
so tired. I know. You know what it is? Video games. Not only are they instigating more school shootings, but also <laughs> dumbing down entertainment by implying that you can watch somebody play a video game and scream like a child. Mm, there you go. Outrageous and wrong. I know. And occasionally throw out a racial slur. <laughs> Terrible. See? I think we just get rid of all video games. It's a, it's a poison on society. Mm, it's true. It's absolutely true. Ban them. Ban them. And yep. all of society's ills will be solved. Yep. Forget what I said about Bernie and and uh, Elizabeth. Like, forget it, all right? We just need to ban video games and everything will be fine. Yeah. Heck, we'll have them added to the platform. Ah, there you along go. Along with ambitious uh, uh, green policies as well as uh, redistributive policies. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And and also in the platform, banning all video games. Perfect. Love it. Love it. <sighs> just, as, just as good as banning all guns, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What what's the harm, really? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I have my spotlight is one of those classic John Mantell spotlights where I can't fully recommend it, but I do want to talk about it. Go ahead. And I haven't quite finished it yet, but I started watching on Hulu the FX miniseries Fosse Verdon. Ah, yes. John, this is it's speaking of things specifically designed to win awards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or they should have just titled it, Sam Rockwell wants an Emmy, goddammit. Yeah, it should have been called FYC Michelle Williamson and uh, Sam Rockwell. <laughs> yes. So uh, Sam Rockwell is obviously playing Bob Fosse, and uh, Michelle Williams is playing his wife. Legendary dancer, in case nobody knows who. Well, God, that's I hope what, you know who Bob Fosse is. Exactly, and that's what drew me to it. I wanted to see how much dancing like Sam Rockwell were actually doing it, and disappointingly, yeah. not very much. Uh, this is late. <laughs> John, John, did you really want to see him, a 50-year-old man? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like... I, you know, like uh, the Natalie Portman when she did Black Swan, it's like that was part of her whole Oscar campaign. It's like, look how hard she worked. I wanted to see yeah. Sam Rockwell kind of do the same thing. I mean, we'll get into sexism in a bit. So anyway, <laughs> and that's kind of the first thing I kind of want to bring up is like we're talking about, you know, power couple, Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew who Bob Fosse was, but I'd never heard of Gwen Verdon. Gwen Verdon is a very famous Broadway star. She uh, got her big break doing Damn Yankees in the 50s. And basically, the miniseries is following their kind of uh, their love affair, their divorce, but then they're kind of like impassioned creative process together. Because even after they get divorced, they still kind of maintain, or they still maintain their relationship creatively. Like... Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob Fosse, uh, this is the time period when he's directing. Um, the The series starts after he's um, after the monumental flop of Sweet Charity, but then he kind of rebounds with directing Cabaret, mm-hmm. and uh, basically, like it, it all culminates in him and uh, them working together on All That Jazz. I haven't finished it yet, but uh, basically, it centers around All That Jazz becoming his kind of like his uh, his masterpiece, his creed de corps. Exactly. Even though it's also kind of a warts and all exploration, Bob Fosse is indelibly a piece of shit. So, okay. yeah. Well, John, he's a complicated white man. This is the format with which yes. you win awards in TV. And that's kind of the problem with it. I wish it kind of found a more creative outlet than just like, oh, complicated, uh, complicated creative geniuses. Look at him. But, yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, Sam Rockwell plays him well because Sam Rockwell, you know, is playing him at a very particular time in his career where he's just kind of like, over it like he's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth like blue collar like that was shit from the top again (laughs) you know spinning his finger around 
who I really want to give a lot of credit to, and I wish the series focused more on it, is Michelle Williams, who completely disappears as Gwen Verdon. I had to keep reminding myself, oh, wait, that's Michelle wow. Williams. Whereas, like, Sam Rockwell is obviously playing the more classy, like, Sam Rockwell is Bob Fosse. Like, <laughs> like Michelle Williams completely, like, drenches herself in the role, and she does an absolutely fantastic job. Okay. And uh, But again, like, I can't help but feel like classic sexism in Hollywood. Like, in real life, Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon were only two years apart. When they cast them, they're 20 years yeah. apart. <laughs> and again, like, the series feels like it's too focused on, like, oh, the complicated man that was Bob Fosse. Yes, he was a big fan of the casting couch. Yes, he sexually harassed his co-stars, but... <laughs> but yes, God, look at the, the amazing talent. Yes, he was demanding and verbally abusive. <laughs> <laughs> But it's only because he wanted the best out of people. And, of course, the only way he knew how to do that is terrible abuse. <laughs> exactly. And I wish the series focused... Like, and, again, he gets top billing. It's yeah. The show is literally called Fosse Verdon. When yeah. I wish the show focused more on Verdon because... And maybe that's the point the show is making, is about mm-hmm. institutionalized sexism and the fact that uh, going into... As the series progresses, you realize that she was uh, sexually assaulted at a very young age. And maybe her kind of whole creative process with Bob Fosse was this whole idea that she felt like she had to support a man, that she felt like she had to kind of give him a career, like he was due and she wasn't. So I, it's it, it's it's a good show, but I can't help but feel like it could have been so much more if it didn't go with the kind of expected trajectory and the kind of, let's be honest, slightly misogynist like trajectory <laughs> as well. Okay. Yeah. All right, but you have nothing but high praise for Michelle Williams. Mm-hmm. She's absolutely fantastic in the world. Yeah, can, can we also confirm it's Gwen Verdon, not Gwen Verdon? Or... I, I have to say it as Verdon, Greg, okay? Okay. <laughs> as a child of Broadway, you have to say it yeah. as Verdon. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to replicate a, a notorious moment with uh, your college radio friends, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> who, just to explain, they, they wanted to talk the subject of a controversial Super Bowl commercial that starred a noted famous quarterback, Tim Tabau. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I didn't want to switch. I, don't, I didn't want to instance with that. Well, I think I I, I want to pronounce it Verdon because part of Michelle Williams' great performance is that she gives it like that New York accent, that kind of vivacious attitude she has. So, okay. And there are people who do pronounce it Verdon, but you know, I don't know. Okay. I, that's, that's how Verdun, I choose. Verdon sounds it. more natural. Verdon, I'm like I wince. So. Well, uh, that's the thing. Watch the show, and you'll see it more uh, more often or not. People pronounce it with that extra emphasis on the O at the end. So. Okay. Yeah. All right. Again, because no, it's, it's New York, like, right? Uh, it's yeah, think of okay. think of Liza Minnelli saying it. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> Liza with a Z, you see. And I'm, I'm I'm okay. Thank you. <laughs> but clearly, what, I'm intimidated by strong women. So. <laughs> What I think you would get out of the show is, and what I do think it does capture well, is the whole creative process. It's not just like the classic kind of like, it's not like you're watching Bohemian Rhapsody and it's like, oh, this would be a great idea for a song. Like they, they yeah. literally show them like... <laughs> they just walk in the room and say, hey, I have an idea called uh, for a song called We Will, we will Rock You. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Like, Wait, what did you say? <laughs> no, <Yeah>. before that. <laughs> I mean, there's like... Early in the episodes, it's him in the editing room of Cabaret, and just like his hand and his 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 face and his hand, just like oh god, yeah. like looking at the uh, you know four hour cut, and it's just like this is complete shit, isn't it? <laughs> like yeah. and you know like <laughs> figuring out what I can identify with that. Everything I've shot has turned out brilliant. So. 
I do want to recommend it, even though it is uh, quite possibly problematic. Hashtag okay. cancel cancel Sam Rockwell. I don't know. <laughs> cancel, no, Bob Fosse. Right. Yes, cancel Bob Fosse. Yeah. Spit on that dead bitch's grave. <laughs> oh, ouch. No, he sucks. I don't know. I actually haven't seen. I don't know the man personally, nor have I seen his work. So Yes, there you go. Yeah. But I stand by my statement. Anyway, if you want to see more hot takes like that, or if you want to cancel us, it's quite yeah. possible because we're on social media everywhere. Exactly. And it's so important to us. Please don't cancel us. Because uh, <laughs> if we don't have Twitter, we obviously don't have a voice. No, um, absolutely so. not. If anything, it's censorship. It's censorship. And the president should get involved. Yes. So give us a follow on Twitter, a like on Facebook, a follow on Instagram. John, you're doing some bang-up job there. Uh, some bang-up oh, work stop there. it. Stop it. You give I me would, too much I'm, credit, Greg. Oh, stop. I'm adoring it. I can't believe it's not up there with Kylie Jenner <laughs> and Chris Pratt. All right? It needs to be. We need millions of followers there. Greg, we're like, we're like Bob Fosse and Gwen. All right? We just we bounce off each other. We're just creatively like inspiring each other. <laughs> yes. And if you're still interested in reaching out to us, you can always do it directly by emailing us at aspiringsnobs at gmail.com. Yes, we do answer questions. Mm-hmm. We do take recommendations. We do take feedback as well. Um, whether we apply that feedback is, is left up to, <laughs> I don't know, left up to the whims of fate or our, our personal prejudices. But um, exactly. we'll go ahead. I mean, we'll, we, we'll go ahead and receive it at the very least. We'll go ahead and read it and receive it. Whether we'll actually apply it, uh, who knows? Yes. I mean, we do try to do movies that we've never seen before. And yeah. that's especially true of next week. Uh, I changed up the schedule a little bit on you, so you're allowed to you're allowed to veto, Greg, if you want. Well, I'm I'm gonna veto because I saw it, and I don't think it's possible to see the the thief and the cobbler. Well, I don't know where it's. It streaming. is on YouTube. It's just they literally call it the recobbled cut, and it's like okay, it's in ten different parts. All right. Yeah. Are you sure it's still going to be up by the time we're? <laughs> yes, watch? actually. Yeah. No. It, it because the algorithm keeps recommending it. I've only seen bits and pieces of it, and the algorithm keeps recommending. It's not going anywhere. It's been on there since. Okay. Like, it's been on there since 2013. Okay. It's not going to get. It's not going to get <laughs> taken right, off this right. week. <laughs> all right. So if you would like to watch the thief and the cobbler along with us, another long gestating creative vision. Yes. Then go ahead watch along with us it's free to watch on youtube mm-hmm. uh, i'm looking forward to it because again yeah that um it would also give us a chance to honor the life of its creator mm-hmm. richard williams uh, who just passed away at the age of 86 mm-hmm. so so this will be kind of like uh this will be a new fresh ground for us because we've never done an unfinished movie before <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well that's not true we did do we... uh the other side of the wind kind of but i i would yes. consider that kind of finished this I've I've seen bits and pieces of it on YouTube, so we're going to try to watch the whole thing on YouTube, and there are some segments that are just pure animatics, so it'll, mm. it, it, I've seen bits and pieces of it, and I'm just kind of really fascinated, so I wanted to give them the excuse for us to both watch it and talk about it, so. Okay, yes, and then we'll compare it unfavorably to Aladdin. <laughs> <laughs> Which, based on our childhoods, uh, is obviously the superior choice. <laughs> I mean, Robin Williams versus Vincent Price, I don't know. They're kind of yeah. equal. <laughs> we'll oh, see. This, okay. They're both voicing Blue Meanies. <laughs> Do you say Blue Meanies or Blue Genies? Blue Meanies. Because, Blue because Zigzag is the vizier, Greg, okay? He's the villain of the piece. You're going to be... You're gonna, I've, I've, I've researched this already. You're going to be so fascinated. Okay. I cannot wait. <laughs> All right. I look forward to it. All right. Until then, thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep aspiring.
come from a land, from a faraway place, where the caravan camels roam. Where it's flat and immense and the heat is intense, it's barbaric, but hey, it's home. When the wind's from the east and the sun's from the west and the sand and the glass is bright, Come on down, stop on by, hop a carpet and fly to another Arabian night. Ah.